On episode 268 of the Tennis Files podcast, you'll learn how to develop winning single strategies with coach John Craig. Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s inspired style and cutting edge performance technology with its sleek mid-cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi-piece upper construction delivers high energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at newbalance.com. Welcome to the Tennis Files podcast, bringing you advice from the top minds in tennis to help you improve your game. And now, here's your host, Mehrban Iranshad. Now, before we start this episode, I've got a super cool serve drill to share with you today about something called twist rotation. If you're just bending your knees when you serve, but not twisting back and down, then you're easily leaving 5 to 10 miles per hour on the table. The best part of this drill is that you don't need to hit a ball to try it. It's living room safe. All you need is a few tennis balls. To check out the drill, go to tennisfiles.com slash crush it. Once you go to that link, you'll learn the twist rotation drill. And while you're there, I highly encourage you to pick up a copy of Crush It from my friend Will Hamilton at Fuzzy Yellow Balls. Crush It will show you 26 drills that allows you to generate power from your entire body so that you can hit your serve, forehand, and backhand much, much harder. To check out the drill, go to tennisfiles.com slash crush it. That's T-E-N-N-I-S-F-I-L-E-S dot com slash C-R-U-S-H-I-T. Hey there, welcome to the show. I'm really excited to have you listening this week. And I'm also really excited to go to Nino Mix sectionals. I have that in a couple of weeks, so my partner and I, Caitlin, have been practicing against our other teammates. And I actually haven't been to sectionals for a while since before COVID. Afterwards, I, like most players, you know, reduced uh, my amount of USA League play, but um, definitely have got back into it um, almost to full strength as before uh, the pandemic. So yeah, really uh, excited to go to sectionals again and compete and, you know, Maybe uh, go to Nationals, we'll see, but I'm um, just going to try to play my best and have fun. All right, well, for this week's episode, I have Coach John Craig, and we actually recorded a really, in my opinion, very insightful interview. I was actually going back through content that I had uh, recorded with my coaches um, from summits and other content, and uh, I came across John's interview with myself. and. Uh, He really put into perspective um, how we need to approach singles matches. And so some of the topics that you'll get to learn from John, uh, who, by the way, he is a coach from uh, or who founded Performance Plus Tennis, and he is a USPTA professional and a racket fit certified coach with over 35 years of tennis coaching experience. Um, I think he's a few years over that for sure. And uh, like I mentioned, he produces a lot of high quality content on Performance Plus Tennis's YouTube channel and website as well, which we'll have a link to it in the show notes uh, on the show notes page. He's been a tennis summit coach for several years running as well, which I'm excited to put back on the calendar once again for uh, for next April. And on today's show, you'll learn a lot about. Uh, why you need a tactical plan for your returns and where to hit them, the two-rule formula for when to hit shots down the line, 
where you should play 75% of your shots in a match, how to take time away from counterpunchers, beginner, intermediate, and advanced single strategies, when you should try to pass opponents short cross court and when that is a mistake, how to stay focused during your matches, and much more. And uh, I really enjoyed going back through this one and thought it would be very valuable for you to listen to it as well. So without further ado, here is my interview with Coach John Craig. Uh, John, it's really a pleasure having you on Tennis Summit 18, and I really appreciate you joining us today. Thank you very much, Marvin. It's uh, great to be here. Uh, I think it's an amazing time to be involved in tennis, and uh, it's uh, never been uh, more thrilling for me as a tennis pro to uh, be a part of the sport we love so much. Awesome stuff, John. And so, obviously, you know, we're really excited to have you on here so you can um, kind of teach us how we can develop uh, strategies to become uh, more successful uh, in match play. Because, you know, a lot of players, they may be focusing on other areas of their game, like uh, fitness or technique, but, you know, you need the entire package. So, obviously, we need to be thinking about, you know, what we, what we need to do out there to be successful on the court. So, uh, really happy to have you here. So, I mean, first question for you is kind of a basic one, but why is, you know, thinking about our, our strategy and developing our strategy is so important to our success? Well, I think, let's, you know, tennis is like life. I think if you don't have a game plan, then you don't have a sense of direction and it's difficult to monitor your success or failures because you really don't know what you're trying to do. So I think it's really important as tennis players that we enter in a match with uh, a game plan and that specifically is focused on ourselves so that we can bring out the best of ourselves and, and really perform at our very best every time we step on the court. Great stuff, John. And so, you know, if I'm sitting here and, you know, trying to think, you know, how, what's, what am I supposed to do now, like to develop these strategies? Like what is the very first step that, you know, that you want players to take so that they can, uh, you know, they can develop a good strategy um, to implement? Well, I think that uh, what precedes strategy is uh, our strokes and shots. So I think it's very important that as tennis players, we all, do a self-assessment and really understand what our strengths and weaknesses are. And uh, what I like to do and have, have students do is really chart every essential component of the game and rank them on a level from one to 10 where one is poor and 10 is high. And then also take those, those attributes and rank them in terms of importance. So you can really chart your, your game and look at where your weaknesses are and understand what you're working with. And that'll really help you understand what you need to improve and how to go about playing your matches. Great stuff, John. And so, you know, talking about the, uh, the self-assessment and charting, I mean, what, you know, what specifically do we need to be charting? Like, what are the types of um, attributes that we need to, you know, write down and then measure? Well, I do have a worksheet for that that uh, I would like to share later on with the viewers, but it's everything from all the common shots you play, uh, everything to your concentration, your focus, determination, your self-assessments during match play, your fitness, agility, mobility, every key component that allows you to play uh, in matches and play at your best that really is essential to performing, I think you really have to size that up and have an understanding of where you need to work on your game as well. It really does reveal uh, where your strengths and your weaknesses are. And ideally, the lower you get in terms of the important elements, those are where the lower scores would be. And the key elements such as serving, you would like to have a 10, obviously, or a nine. And then as you're moving down, you can have a lower number, but it certainly gives your game a perspective. Gotcha. Great stuff, John. And so when you talk about charting, I'm, I'm just curious, you know, is there any utility in charting 
um, practices as well, or do we just want to chart, you know, matches? And is there any variations that you use, like in the charting when you chart different like tournaments as well? You're talking in terms of charting match play itself. Right, like, exactly. Like, would you ever chart, you know, like a practice match or something like that as well? I do. I chart my students' matches because it's so revealing uh, where their what what their tendencies are and what kind of mistakes they make. Uh, so I I have a charting system that I use for my students in their match play. Gotcha. Great stuff. And and also, you know, in terms of um, how do you factor in like the type of player that we are in in developing the strategies uh, that we need to use. Well, I think that kind of feeds back and understanding, you know, what really happens in, in match play. So once we move beyond uh, our own self-assessment, I, I think we have to look at statistically what really happens in matches so that we understand what the important pieces are. I, I think that tennis players tend to make it much more complicated than it needs to be. I think it's quite simple in many ways. We need to simplify the game. And if we look at the statistics, uh, for example, that Craig O'Shaughnessy has been so fantastic in, in, in producing, we realized that uh, between 60 and 70% of all points end before the fourth shot or on the fourth or before the fourth shot. So knowing that, that immediately tells, should tell every player that they need to work on their serve and their return to serve. Those are the key elements. And, and even though those are not the most common practice, those are the ones that are, if you want to improve your match play performance, those are the two shots you really need to improve. Right. And that's a really great point. Obviously, you know, serve and return are the most uh, utilized shots, you know, um, because obviously there may not be any <laughs> third shot or even second shot. But so, you know, when we talk about uh, diving deeper into those, how specifically should we be trying to work on, let's say, the serve? Like what are some of the most important, you know, elements of, of working on the serve for us? Well, I think that the Really, the key is, is accuracy and, and variations and spins and speeds. So I think, you know, most players try to hit their serve, uh, hit their very best serve on their first serve almost every time. And so uh, I really like students to hit their serve. I have like a 75% rule, and it applies to different shots in tennis. But on the serve, what I like students to do is hit their first serve at 75% of their full capacity. 75% of the time. And if they do that, they're likely to get a 75% or approximately 75% first serve percentage. So if they can up their percentage by not feeling as though they have to hit their best serve every time they hit a first serve, then they're going to receive more returns that are going to be defensive in nature so they can dictate on that second ball they play. So for me, I think it's more important that, that players understand how to place the serve, vary the serve with speeds and spins and locations than just sheer power. Right. Good stuff, John. And then also, I mean, uh, obviously you mentioned the return. So if uh, it'd be great if you could mention a few keys for us to, to focus on, um, you know, for, the, for that particular area of our game. Well, I, I think, you know, and a lot of these concepts that we're discussing are under the assumption that two players are competing that are very similar in ability. So if I'm receiving a first serve I'm usually a little bit more defensive and minded in nature, but I have a tactical plan from the start. I already know where I want to place the ball. So if I receive a backhand in the deuce court, I already know where I want to play the return on that first serve. And if it comes to my forehand, I already have a preset plan where I want to return the ball as well. So, but my, obviously my objective on that first ball is to get the ball in play and, and see if I can get into a neutral situation with my opponent where I can take advantage on that 
fourth ball that's, that's played. Gotcha, John. And so it's interesting because, and I've even done um, interviews with some uh, professional players where I've asked them, you know, like, how do you d- develop your game plan? And, and I, I've heard a decent amount of them say, oh, you know, I just pretty much try to focus on my own game. So I'm wondering how, you know, what's your take on, you know, the importance of kind of knowing, you know, not only your own game, but also your opponent's game as well? Well, I think we've probably all experienced, you know, walking into a tournament match and knowing nothing about our opponent. And, you know, there's, to me, that's, there's, that's one of the most exciting things about, about playing a match is walking in, not knowing your opponent at all. And I, so I think it's, I think it's much more important that we focus on ourselves and that we understand and focus on bringing out the best in ourselves on any given day. And uh, I think G- Venus Williams, which she played in her first U.S. Open final, I believe it was 2000, uh, they asked her after she won her semifinal match, how are you going to play against Lindsay tomorrow? And she says, I'm not going to worry about Lindsay. I'm going to focus on myself. And uh, if I do my part, then the match outcome will take care of itself. And I, I think that's really important that we don't get overly caught up at first in a match with, under, with looking at our opponent, but instead let's take care of our business. And, and secondarily, you can then start to assess whether your opponent has weaknesses or not and then formulate plans around that. Gotcha, John. So it's, it's kind of, I guess, the key really for us if we're doing that is to just kind of either on our own or, you know, with somebody to help us to just have them kind of chart and, and us and then show our, us our strengths and weaknesses through the statistics and then try to figure out, you know, game plan based around that. Is that kind of correct? Yeah, and I think to be clear, the, the self-assessment is something that you can sit down with and, and do without even playing a match. I think we all understand, you know, to objectively what our strengths and weaknesses are in our tennis game. I think it's just important to put it on paper and chart it so we look at it objectively to see what areas we need to improve. So the, the charting concept doesn't have to necessarily be someone charting our matches as much as we know what we're doing, you know. My backhand is weaker than my forehand. If my serve is poor, my second serve is weak, and my opponents are picking on it, so on and so forth. Gotcha, John. And then so, you know, once we kind of know, you know, what our strengths are and what our weaknesses are, how do we kind of, you know, where do we go from there? How do we translate that into into a general game plan, um, you know, for against opponents? Well, I think that, uh, you know, if you have weaknesses, if your serve is weak, I don't think there's any way to hide that. So, uh, and you can compensate for that with exceptional consistency and agility on the court. But I think ultimately uh, shots and strokes are what allow you to expand on your strategies and uh, perform better on the court. So I think you have to go back to to uh, working on your fundamental skills and uh, improving your game through fundamentals. And then you can have more options tactically in a match. Gotcha, John. And so I'm just curious, too, because you mentioned, obviously, the serve and return, um, you know, and I'm just <laughs> digging one more step. I'm curious to, to know from your perspective what may be the, th- maybe the third and fourth most important, because maybe that will be helpful for the audience to say, okay, let me, this is how I'll prioritize. I'll work on my serve and develop that, and then next I'll work on my returns. And then, you know, maybe if they're, you know, satisfied with those aspects, you know, maybe they're curious about what, other one or two things we should be trying to work on to get the most return on investment? When I think of the serve and I, and I start the point serving, I already have a pre-plan for my first shot that I'm going to receive. So I know where I'm going to serve the ball. I 
already anticipate what kind of return I'm going to get or where it's going to be. And I already know what I want to do with that next ball. I, I have two shots in mind and I have to make a decision quickly on which of those two shots I'm going to play. So I don't enter into the point without a, a plan for the, for the first ball after the serve. And that allows me to play with more freedom, less doubt, and not, not hesitate, not knowing really what shot I want to play. So I can be much more decisive with what it is I want to do with that, that first ball after the serve. And again, if we serve well and we can, we can produce the kind of return we can anticipate and we can dictate off of that ball, that gives us the ability to win the majority of those points that are played in four shots or less. Gotcha, John. And so I'm curious as well, you know, as far as um, I, I'm sure it's, it's very useful for us to develop, you know, certain plays in our, in our head or to write down um, in planning for these matches. Is there like a general guideline for how many sorts of like plays that we want to develop? Like you mentioned, you know, maybe we have, we have planned to hit a slice serve and then, you know, set up the foreign to the opposite side. So how many, you know, plays do you kind of, you know, uh, try to pre-plan for these matches, if at all. Well, again, it always boils down to what my strengths are, and and I I think you know Andy Murray said it best when he said that tennis is a game of a lot of quick decision making, and so there are multiple shots and multiple plays depending on what your skill level and your experience is. So I, I can't say there's a, a you know two two plays or six plays or three plays. There's so many factors that play into those quick decisions that you make, where the return goes. What, what kind of a shot you have, what position you are in the court. I just think it's really important for us as tennis players to understand what high percentage shots are available from different points in the court so that we're making good choices. I think that um, most of us make errors. Most tennis players make errors because they choose the wrong shot at the wrong time. Uh, I was out at uh, the desert, the B&B Paribas Open a couple weeks ago and uh, watched a lot of the pro matches very carefully and it's even at the professional level it's amazing how many times they make an error going for a down the line shot at the wrong point at the wrong 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 time in the point and they try to they try to thread that needle and they miss into the alley even at the professional level i think they try to go down the line at the wrong time oftentimes so so i have a i have a formula for uh high percentage ground strokes and it's kind of simple in a way you know, the, when do you go down the line from behind the baseline? And it's really simple. You go down the line when you know you can without making a mistake and you believe you're either going to win the point or take control of the point by doing so. If either of those two factors are not there, going down the line from behind the baseline is a mistake. Gotcha, John. That's great yeah. stuff. And so, you know, as far as I'm just curious, you know, about the maybe some of the biggest mistakes that we're making in our in planning our strategy for matches, like what are some some critical flaws that you see, you know, players and coaches make besides the fact that they, some of them don't, you know, plan at all. <laughs> I, I think that, you know, oftentimes when we enter a tournament or one of my students enters a tournament, they go, oh my gosh, I'm playing, I'm playing the number two seed and oh my goodness. So a lot of times players tr try to play beyond their ability and stretch their games because they think they have to, to beat their opponent. And there have been many occasions where I've beaten a player that's better on paper than myself, but I played well within my game and, and just was tenacious and stayed with my strategy of not overplaying the ball and just was tough to beat. And I was able to beat players. So I think that we have to know our game, play within our skill set, and uh, that will really help us you know, be able to play much better against players. 
The other thing I often tell my students when they go, oh my gosh, I'm playing he or she, is I just say, look, they're not going to hit one ball in this match that you haven't seen 500 times or a thousand times in your, in your, in your playing game, career. So it's not about the, the ball that you're receiving. You're, you're preoccupied with who you're playing. If you can get that out of your head and just focus on the ball and just play your game, then your game can rise. Yeah, yeah for sure, John, for sure. Yeah. And wondering about, you know, obviously the, our strategies should vary, of course, but is there like a, a universal best strategy or strategies, you know, when starting out in a match, let's say, assuming you don't know your opponent, so you don't know like what specifically might work, you know, is there like a style that you advocate in, at least in the beginning? Again, uh, assuming that, uh, you know, the players are equal ability and, and they also have balanced skill sets. From the baseline, I, I have a 75% rule again where I think that we should try to play 75% of our shots cross-court or down the middle, and maybe 25% are going to go down the line. Again, contingent upon the prior guideline that I provided. Um, I think that if you're receiving short balls that are above the level of net, it's a 50-50 cross-court or down the line. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you're receiving or playing an approach shot with a ball that's below the level of the net, Inside the service line, I think that goes back to the 75% down the line in front of you so that you really put your opponent in a position where they have to hit an accurate shot to beat you. Gotcha. And do you, do you vary that um, approach shot, like where to hit it, um, you know, depending on, on the player too? You know, are there any uh, variations with that? Like, let's say if they have like a weaker side or, or any other variables? Well, once you've identified that there's a weakness then I think you, you can focus more on that weakness. Even if the ball were, let's say, short to your backhand and low inside the service box, and you can hit a cross-court approach shot because you know your opponent is uncomfortable passing, well, then, of course, that works. And I would, I would isolate that and focus on that until they demonstrate that they can, they can counter it. And if they can't, then you just keep going there. If they do counter it, then I would, I would reserve going back there again until it's a critical point again rather than letting them really stay in a groove on it. Gotcha, John. And what are, let's say, two to three or maybe four um, of your top, um, you know, plays off the serve that we can use that are just really, you know, really solid that usually will win you the point if you execute them properly? Well, I think from the from the deuce court, if I if I get a ball to my uh, serve to my backhand as a second serve, then I I'm very comfortable really taking that ball straight down the line, so that it's playing into the opponent's backhand. And from there, if you see that they're stretched, you can move forward and knock the ball off that they're they're returning back to you. And if not, then you know you're in position to get into a cross court exchange at least initially. Uh, from the ad court. If you get a ball that comes down the middle, then the inside-out forehand is great tactic. I love using the inside-out forehand because it fe- I feel like you can really take control of the baseline from from the left side of the court for a right-hander uh, playing playing the forehand into the backhand corner. And then you're still well-balanced in the court to get into a cross-court exchange. Gotcha, gotcha. Good stuff, John. And so I guess going back to... Um, you know, developing our game plan, like obviously, like we mentioned, we have our strengths and we know and what they are and then we can develop some plays. But let's say we know our opponent and we know what kind of style they are. So can you give us some advice on how to then, you know, actually write down on paper, you know, what we need to do based on those different uh, playing styles? 
So for example, if you know, you know, I think that a lot of the, the content that's on the web is a how to be a pusher. And so, you know, that's, I think that's the most frustrating type of player to play against. Uh, most people have trouble playing against a pusher at all different levels, a player that's tenacious and is consistent and simply doesn't beat him or herself. And so you know, how do you beat a player such as a pusher? And, I, and for me, I think that you have to take their time away. So you have to take their time away by serving well, and you have to take their time away either by bringing them forward where they have less time to respond to your passes or your lobs, or you need to be able to come forward, obviously, and take their time away from whatever your shot may be, whether it's a volley out of the air or an overhead, whatever it may be, or, or approach shot. So for playing against pushers, pushers are effective because they have a tremendous balance between the speed of their ball and their foot speed. So it almost it always seems like they never get out of position because they're always they always give themselves time to recover, and that makes it very frustrating to play against. So the, really, the solution again is how do we take their time away? So that's that's really how to uh, how to pursue and attack a pusher. But again, it always goes back to what is your skill set? Do you have the shots and the, and the skills to actually execute the strategy that you have in mind? So. Gotcha, John. And how about uh, one other playing style? How about against, say, an aggressive uh, baseliner who is just hitting a lot of uh, deep balls and, and you know, is, is very uh, an attacking style? Like, what, ki- what kinds of um, strategies would you use against them? Well, you know, it's, it's a, that's a tough one. And obviously that would be, if you look at what Rafael Nadal has been doing for years, uh, he's a very aggressive baseliner, hits heavy spin, usually hits quite a bit of depth, he's got great foot speed. So, you know, for example, what has Roger Federer done to establish a five-match winning streak against him? And I think what he's done is he's taken his time away again. Roger Federer has made up his mind that he's going to, you know, take the ball early against Rafa. And I, I think that's a very good example of a simple – you know, strategy. I don't, I don't think Roger goes out and plays Rafa saying, well, I'm going to hit this ball here and hit that ball there and set it up like this. It's really not so much a chess game as it is an overall mentality that I am going to attack and take his time away and play the shots that I'm very comfortable playing. So I think the way you have to, you know, play against a, a heavy, hard baseline player is, again, you've got to take their time away. You've got to be aggressive. Or you, if you got to bring them forward, if they love the baseline, you got to bring them forward and get them into a position where they're uncomfortable. But again, you have to have the ability to do that, and then you have to have the ability to do something when they are in that in that position at the net as well. So, always is going to always feed back to you know what is your skill set. Gotcha, John. And uh, I guess I lied. I'm going to ask you about one more playing style. Please. Sorry. Um, so against a servant volleyer, I'm curious. You know what what are the optimal types of shots? You know against them. You know. Uh, obviously, the return, of course, is the most important, but then also even, you know, if they get the volley back, like what other types of shots are, are, are effective against those players? I love playing against servant volley players because I, I love I loved the challenge of trying to pass them and, and find your way to, you know, through them, especially the big hitters. I always love playing against big servant volleyers. So, again, I think, you know, obviously you're trying to get the return at their feet, uh, that first serve, get it back at their feet, get it low, try to get some kind of a defensive uh, volley if you can, but then it's really important to understand where the volley, where you're playing your pass shots from, and what are the best options that you have. And, you know, one of the examples that I use in my uh, core positioning system is understanding that if you, if you're hitting a volley, a, a passing shot off of a volley from, let's say, the midcourt on the right-hand side, is, is the cross-court shot really available or is the down-the-line more available? 
And, you know, when you're in the middle of the court, the closer you get to the net, the sharper angle you must hit. So it's a very difficult shot to hit uh, cross court from mid court. Uh, if you go down the line, you get to utilize the full length of the court. And if your opponent does get their hands on the, the racket on the volley, you are still in a position where you may be able to make a response and a play off of that volley. But if you go cross court, you have to hit an amazing angle or it's an easy knockoff volley for them. Gotcha. Great, great stuff. Appreciate that, John. And I know I'm kind of jumping back and forth between like actual like match play and the game plan, but so, you know, now it, it's, it seems obviously much clearer now what, what types of things we need in, in the game plan. But, you know, I just want to ask you, like, you know, practically speaking, when we, when we sit down the night before, whenever we have time and we, we, like, construct that game plan, what are the critical elements that, you know, you have your students write down or that we need to actually write down ourselves so that we can, can apply this to our, our own um, preparation? Yeah, I, go, I really try to help my students, you know, have a game plan for the first two shots, really understanding what high percentage tennis is, have them really try to apply the 75% rule on cross court or ground, ground stroke exchanges. So really avoid the temptation to go down the line too early in the points and really be content to keep the ball cross court and deep um, and, and let the point play out. And when you Wait till you know you get the right ball to change the angle and go down the line. Don't be impatient and try to go down the line too early in the point if you're into a cross court, if you're into a rally and a cross court exchange. Gotcha, gotcha. And, um, you know, about the self assessment that we talked about, you know, how, how often do we need to be kind of like self assessing and, and revamping, you know, if needed, our, our uh, you know, overall strategies and game plans? I think it's ongoing. Yeah, I think it's. I think I think we're. It's, it's ongoing. But certainly, if we're if we're playing tournaments, a couple of tournaments, tournaments a month, I think we need to be looking at it on a monthly basis and and really understanding where our, where our weaknesses are and if we're if we're cleaning them up and, and getting them better. Gotcha, John. And so with um, you know, video is obviously a very uh, very um, useful tool. And I was just wondering, you know, how you might suggest that we you know, use video to help our players as well and even ourselves, you know, for coaching? Well, I use video extensively, not only for uh, evaluating student skills, but also for looking at, at what they do in matches, as well as training and teaching. I think it's a great tool to use. Uh, but again, if, if the student doesn't know what they're looking at, then I, it may not help them. So they have to make sure they have a good coach or they have a clear understanding of what it is they're looking at to help them improve whatever the technique is that's, that, that they're working on. I, I'm, I'm a technical foundation guy uh, primarily, and I, I just go back to the fundamental basics that even Welby Van Horn says in his book, Secrets of a Tennis Master, without, without strokes and shots, you really can't have a, elaborate strategies. You can't. So mm -hmm. you can't implement much if you don't have much. So you really got to keep working on your skills. Um, but again, at the same time, I think that we need to keep the game simple. You know, uh, Grigor Dimitrov was 40 in the world in July of 2016. And uh, November of 2017, he was three in the world. And when he was asked what he did, he said, I just went back to the basics and I just keep things simple. I just went back to working on my game and keeping a simple strategy. So he's very clear in his mind what he's doing when he's on the court. And he doesn't have a lot of, you know, uh, his mind is not convoluted with, with tactical options. It's very simple. 
Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s-inspired style and cutting-edge performance technology with its sleek mid-cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi-piece upper construction delivers high-energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at newbalance.com. Gotcha. And, and just to nail down, because I know, John, you, you, you kind of mentioned it already, but, you know, like in the case of Grigor, you know, when you because I'm sure you, you watched him, um, you know, during that rise, like when he's talking about basics, what types of things did, did it look like he he did or changed or worked on to, to you know, rise to the top of using the fo- focusing on the basic strategy? Well, I, I, what I observed is not a whole lot of change in his strokes. Strokes look the same. I think he was more confident because he knew precisely what he wanted to do. He eliminated options that didn't make sense, and he just had a, he played with clarity and uh, a sense of purpose, and he played high percentage tennis. He focused more on himself, not really concerning himself so much with what his opponent was doing, but what he did well, and he, and, he, and he really built his game around high percentage tennis, and he was decisive in what he was doing. So I think when we, we overcomplicate the game uh, as amateur players, then we make more mistakes because we're hesitating or doubting rather than being decisive. So if we, if we limit our options and they're high percentage options and we commit to them and we practice the skills that enable those to happen better, then we perform better in matches. Gotcha. Gotcha, John. And so, um, you know, how do we kind of reconcile – you know, the fact that there's certain strategies that we want to implement, but we may not be confident in our abilities. Is it that we're just basically, you know, using our strengths that we're comfortable with and then using those in the matches while on the side practicing, you know, the skills that we don't have yet? Is that kind of the approach there? Yeah. And I, again, I think, it all, again, assuming that we're playing against players of similar ability with, with fairly balanced skill sets, you know, obviously, if you have a weakness in your game, such as uh, a backhand, as an example, and you're playing against an opponent who can exploit that, well, it's pretty hard to def- it's pretty hard to defend that. So, um, you know, I think the best way, for example, to if if your opponent has a has a weak backhand, how do you how do you exploit it? Well, you hit, you play to their forehand first, and then you open up the backhand. So, if if your opponent is capable of doing that to you, and your backhand is weak, I don't I don't know you know how you really counter that. Um, so yeah, you got to you got to go back to the the drawing board and work on your skills and and enjoy the journey of practicing and improving, so that you shore up your game and, and really have a balanced skill set. Gotcha, John. And I, I know you just said that you know you you don't really know how you know we could really effectively defend, but if you you know were put to the you know if the pressure was on and you had to like figure out like a strategy like or at least something to mitigate or like re- reduce like the the havoc on the backhand because a lot of players, you know, they have a weak backhand, which is why we've mentioned it. So what types of things would you tell them to do to at least compensate for the time being? I would have them, uh, you know, really hunt for forehands. If they're really confident with their forehand, really hunt for forehands. I do a, a hunt for forehand uh, skill drill with my, with my students as well to really help them, you know, really try to track down forehands. I've got a couple of students that love to hit inside out forehands. So, you know, really track down more forehands um, if your backhand, if you really can't drive the backhand, then I would say, you know, hit a, a nice high level, deep, deep ball to, and just try to keep your opponent, you know, on the baseline. So you have time to respond to whatever it is they do. 
obviously if they come to the net and you don't have a passing shot, then don't try a passing shot. You know, if you lob the ball, try to stay in the point, try to try to stay in the point long enough till you get the, the shot you like, the forehand you like. Gotcha. But, yeah. Gotcha. And, and also, I mean, you did mention uh, previously that obviously <laughs> we need the technical abilities to implement strategies, which is so true, but at what level, because it, it obviously, you know, when the amateur, amateur players, like they do have quite a few uh, technical flaws and whatnot, you know, at what point do you think on the NTRP scale, like of 3.0 to 5.0 and whatnot, like what, at what point do you think strategy starts to matter more where you'd say, okay, like now you can actually implement more strategies or, you know, versus, oh, you need to just work on your technique first or, or is strategy really always a factor? Uh, no matter what level you are, well, it always is. It always is. If the players again are of similar ability, if they're three O's and you can serve to the, the your opponent's backhand, then you get a weak reply. It's all relative. So, if the weak reply comes back and it's it's relative to the three O, then you can you can perhaps dictate to the three O level. So, it, and I think I think the statistics and and the parities are are all relative, and and that's why. If you look at Craig O'Shaughnessy's statistical work, the the, st the stats don't change from the professional level all the way down to the junior 12s because yeah, the number of shots per point and how points are ended and how many you know errors are made it's almost universally the same. So I, I think that it it does matter at every level. It's just the skill level you're playing at. Great yeah. stuff, John. Appreciate that. And so I'd also love to take a look at. Uh, I know you mentioned there's a couple. Um, you know, visuals you wanted to share with us so we could do that too and discuss them. Sure. So, you know, I have a series of different charts that I've created that help players and my students understand parts of the court that are available and parts of the court that are not. And this one, this one's pretty simple, but this one explains why, you know, playing down the middle is, is a really good tactic and also shows you what's available if you're playing the shot from down the middle. So the, in this example, the yellow box is where you're playing your shots from. And the, the red triangles are obviously revealing the part of the court that really is not statistically available in a high percentage play. So really the idea here is if you're playing from the middle section of the court behind the baseline, play your shots inside the actual dimensional corners of your opponent's court. The benefit there, of course, is that you get to utilize the full length of the court to play your shots and you're really going to be playing high percentages. Yeah, that's great stuff. And so, John, with this, um, you know, the red part of, of, uh, of the um, chart, or, you know, the graphic, obviously, I'm wondering, so does that mean that if you are on either behind the baseline, but, you know, on the left side or right side, far right or left, or if you're in anywhere inside the service line, then that, that area becomes available, like more available statistically? The red? Yeah, the red, right. Well, I think you'll you'll see you know in the next slide okay. how that those parts of the court become available. Oh, but from the yellow box, consider those those red areas unavailable in terms of high percentage tennis. Gotcha. So play gotcha. play inside the actual dimensional corners of the court, and that really you know really eliminates those errors where you pull a ball wide or hit the ball you know long. You're going for a certain angle, but you don't you don't get the ball to land short enough, so it really essentially is a long shot. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, especially, you know, like just thinking of different scenarios, like if you were on the left side uh, of the of the yellow part and you tried to hit like a, a backhand kind of down the line, but really like 
it's kind of, yeah, just the angle. It's just such a tough sell, you know, tough shot to make that you might as well play the percentages. So that's really great. And, uh, as you mentioned, you know, you already anticipated my next question by <laughs> with the next slide. So, so this, this one, this chart illustrates how angles become available to you as you move from the middle of the court and start to move to the, to the side of the court. So, you know, in the first example where you're closest to the center hash mark, you're still really playing inside the dimensional corner of your opponent's side of the court. As you move further out to the right, the angles start to become available to you. And the further out you go, the more angle you can get. But of course, the red triangle still presents where you're, the court's almost unavailable for most players in most, most cases. So just take that out of play. And then the, it also demonstrates, you know, really the part of the court down the line that is unavailable most of the time from behind the baseline. Gotcha. That's good stuff, uh, John. And so I'm curious too, like, do these, um, you know, these parameters kind of change or at all, depending on what kind of ball you get, like, you know, if you get it down the line where you can hit that versus like, if you're receiving a cross court shot, like what's, what's feasible. Yeah. And again, I go back to my, my principal rule that, you know, you can hit down the line from behind the baseline, but you better know you can make the shot and you, you really should expect that you're going to get a weak reply or no reply. Because if, if you and I are in a, in a cross court rally, forehand to forehand, mm -hmm. and I just hit a neutral ball down the line to your backhand, I can pretty much expect that you're going to move over and hit a cross court backhand, which is going to be very natural and comfortable for you and make me run the width of the court and have to hit a backhand. So that's not a scenario that I want to create for myself. Mm. So the only time I'm going to go to your backhand from behind the baseline is when I think I can hurt you and I know I can make the shot. I'm really going to avoid the occasion, the, the situation where I think I'm going to be able to you know, hit that ball down the line and I miss it. I miss it long or I miss it wide because I've received a ball from you that is, is a complicated ball. It's too difficult to change the direction and control. So I'm not going to do that. Gotcha. And uh, yeah, I appreciate that you brought up that scenario because it makes me curious. Um, is it a good play in your opinion to, you know, either loop or just hit, hit the ball, like hit your foreign into the backhand and then just, you know, run, run around your like, so basically you, you're preparing to hit one of those forehands that you're talking about, like searching for the forehand. So is it a good play to hit down the line forehand and then just immediately start moving laterally and trying to set up a forehand, for, you know, anticipating that you can get one from their backhand? It could work, but I don't think you need to hit that, that red zone that's down the line as presented in the chart here. I think you could hit the ball to the backhand half of the court, high and deep, and get a, get a ball that's more likely to come back down the middle than if you hit it wide. Let's suppose that you just you know, looped it down the line wide and it did land in, that, in the red zone. Your opponent has a much, has, it's much more comfortable for your opponent to hit that ball cross court. And so you're probably not going to get the forehand you want anyway. Right, right. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, appreciate that. Cool. Good graphic. Again, it presents the yellow, the yellow uh, zone is where I would be playing my passing shot from. The, the blue dot is where you're standing. And it just presents how the closer I get in to the court, the more sharply my cross-court angle passing shot has to be so that you can't volley it. I, I no longer can hit this shot 
into the service box corner because it, it'll be an easy it'll be an easy pick for you at the net. So from this position, I have a lot more length down the line to work with, a lot more court length to work with, and I'm also in position to potentially respond to whatever volley you hit. Gotcha, good stuff. And and like we mentioned, obviously the one. One exception is if they're, they have like a big weakness on that cross court side. Are there any other exceptions that you can think of, you know, to go cross court um, besides, you know, the, what, what you listed here, if they're protecting the down the line or if they have a weakness or is that pretty much it really? Well, you know, if they have a weak, weak backhand volley, that that's potentially uh, why you, why you just go down the line anyway, if they're really protecting the the backhand side and you and you can get that ball cross court away from them then you can do it uh if the ball's above the level of the net uh then your options are open because the, they're not going to have much time to respond um so if the ball's above the level of the net it's game on you know mm. uh you can hit cross court you can hit at them you can hit down the line if it's if it's you know it's your ankle level i think it's wise to go down the line most of the time it's a trickier shot Again, it goes back to your skill set. Um, if you're in that yellow zone and you have the touch and the feel to be able to roll a forehand or just caress a forehand into that angle, then that's great. But that's not an easy shot to do. Yeah, that's a great point. Great point, John. So I guess maybe people who are more adept at, at spins and hitting, you know, yeah, just like hitting heavy spins like in a doll, like there, it's probably better for them than to, to hit those shots than like a pure flat shot type of player especially if it's not high enough i guess right right, right. And i think if we look at the cross court angle here and let's suppose that you attempted that shot on that angle but the ball landed in the alley is the ball long or is it wide right well it's long it's yeah. long in your mind if you as a line judge they'll call it wide but in your mind it's long because you hit it on the line you wanted to but it carried further than it it, it, it had to stay shorter than it did to stay in the court so that becomes either a spin or a speed or a control element. So that's what makes that, that shot so difficult is the shortness of the, of the court for you. Great stuff, John. And so I really do appreciate, um, you know, you giving us all this fantastic information. I do want to also, before I ask you uh, my, my final question uh, content-wise, I want to just, you know, educate the audience about all the great stuff that, that you do, um, especially about um, Performance Plus. I wanted to ask you about, um, you know, about your website and what types of resources that we could find uh, over there. Yeah, I started Performance Plus Tennis two years ago, and I started the, the uh, program with a serve foundation course, which is really teaching players how to build their serve uh, from really from the beginning all the way through. And it, it's, it's really been fantastic. It work, it's an ideal program, whether you're a beginner or you're an advanced player. Uh, it really does uh, dissect and present uh, the fundamentals of the serve. And so I've had a lot of great claim from that. I've had players from all over the world that have bought it and said it's the best serve program that they've ever, ever, ever bought online. And they, some of them said they bought them all. So that, that really makes me happy. I think that the serve is widely misunderstood. And uh, if you get the fundamentals right and really understand what you're trying to do, then I think it's the leading shot in the game. So uh, I really think that everyone can improve their serve. Uh, so that's really the big program that's on there now. There's, there's some other videos and other things that are there. I have a lot of things planned uh, this year and beyond uh, as well. Um, and uh, But that's a great place to go and, and get some resources on how to serve. Um, 
I have a second program coming out. It's called Advanced Serving Techniques and Tactics, and it's how to take the fundamentals of the serve and then use the serve as a strategic tool. And that's due to come out in about uh, 60 days. And for the Tennis Summit members, I do have a special uh, for them that's going to run for about two weeks following the summit. So if they're interested, head on over to my website, and uh, I will provide you with a, with a link for that, and they can they can get a, a a special 50% off on the, on the Sur foundation package. So awesome stuff. Really appreciate that, uh, John. And, uh, yeah, I didn't even know that was, that was happening. So that's great. I'm going to, um, include the link below the video and then you all can check that out. So I really do appreciate, uh, that, that from you, John. So that's great. And definitely you should all uh, check that out. Uh, check the serve course out. Um, well, both of them, uh, and the other resources at, uh, at John's website, performance tennis plus.com. Uh, and uh, also, John, as well, I'm just curious, like, you know, are there any, you know, what, what types of things that you, you might be doing, like, live as well? Like, do you, you know, do you teach in physical locations at the moment as well? I'm a uh, tennis professional at the Newport Beach Tennis Club here in Newport Beach, California. And uh, I am uh, very involved in the junior development program there as the curriculum and player development manager. I help quite a bit with the two directors that are, have a really great program there. And I also teach uh, adults for the club uh, as well. And we have a great staff. Uh, uh, Rick Leach is there. And Scott Davis is there. I see those guys all the time. And we have a lot of great players at the clubs. Great place. Uh, we did host the uh, Oracle Challenger Series uh, in January, and Taylor Fritz uh, won that. And uh, I think I remember the gal that won the women's, women's event. I think her last name's Collins, and she was in the semis in Miami. Daniel so, Collins. Daniel Collins, yeah. So mm-hmm. she was, I think she won that tournament uh, as well. And so it's a great club and a great place, and uh, I really enjoy being there. So I'm there six days a week and then I do filming and work on my online business uh, as time permits. That's wonderful. I mean, that's really cool. Uh, I mean, especially, you know, you mentioned Rick Leach being there. Uh, that's, you know, fantastic player, obviously. That's uh, really cool that you guys had the challenger event because it's such high level uh, tennis, even at, at that, that level. I mean, they're just so, so darn good. And I remember seeing Daniel Collins, uh, I think two years ago in Florida and it's interesting because, you know, at that point I saw her lose a, a match in the first round of a futures event at the national uh, campus, you know, and then it's just really cool to see her progress so well, but um, that's fantastic. And also I was going to mention, you know, like I've, I've just seen so many wonderful comments on your serve course, John, uh, as you were talking about, and just uh, really, you know, all the people were really, really happy with the, what, the product that you put out. So I'm, I'm glad that you're, you know, making more, products as well. So definitely cool for the audience to check out. Um, I just wanted to ask you too, if um, there's any, you know, the best way to maybe connect with you online or in person. Yeah, they can, uh, if you go to my website, you can, you can contact me through the website. Uh, you can also uh, call or text me on my phone number, which is uh, area code 949-278-7704. I'm always available to answer questions and talk to, talk to anybody about tennis. So feel free to give me a call or a text. Send me an email at info at performanceplustennis.com. I'm easy to find on the web. Just Google me. You'll find me. <laughs> That's yeah. great. It's great. And, uh, you're very brave to put out the phone number there. Uh, hopefully you won't get well, I mean, hopefully you do get a ton of texts, but <laughs> it's all right and that you have time. But yeah, that's really, really kind of you to provide the contact information and definitely, you know, you all should 
reach out to John if you have questions, uh, as he mentioned. So I appreciate that. And um, uh, John, you know, you obviously fantastic, uh, you know, session today about uh, winning strategies. And I wanted to ask you one final question that I always do for, uh, you know, the coaches and experts on, on the summit and on my podcast too, which is, uh, what is one key tip that you can give our audience to help them improve their tennis games? And I would probably ask that it be a, from a strategic, uh, you know, point given uh, given the presentation. Well, I, I like to ask this question because it's a bit of a trick question. But I I ask my students, what's the most important shot in tennis? And and they usually say, oh, the serve. And I say, well, that's a stroke. So what is the most important shot in tennis? And it's it's always the next one. So, you know, the best advice I can give students, regardless of your skill level, if you're playing someone of similar ability, if you have a clear mind, a fresh mind, and you treat every shot with equal importance, then you have the ability to, to play your shots well. And I, I you know, when I was playing, uh, I back in the days, I used to carry no cards with me because on the changeovers, I would self-coach myself. And the, the first card always I always asked it said how well are you moving your feet today so wow oh my gosh I'm not moving my feet so well and then the next card was how well are you seeing the ball today and then the third card was what are your opponent's strengths what are your opponent's weaknesses and then the fourth card was what are you going to do in the next two games before you come back here sit down again so I was able to self-coach myself and really get down to what the fundamentals are if you're moving your feet well seeing the ball well, you assess your opponent, and you enter the next two games with a, with a plan, and you come back and assess, at least you're staying on track. And I think that if you, if you have a plan, I think the key thing is if you have a plan, then you're able to immerse yourself into the match, emotionally engage yourself in the match to the point where you're no longer thinking about the consequences of winning and losing, but you're simply focusing on performing. And uh, that's where your chances of winning really become the best. Awesome stuff, John. Very insightful. And um, again, you know, thanks so much for all your hard work. And, you know, obviously, you know, you're doing, uh, you're, you're teaching and, and coaching. Uh, and then the, in addition to that, you're working hard on, on the online stuff too, as well. And so I definitely applaud you for that. And uh, thanks so much for giving us your time on Tennis Summit 2018. And I hope you, you know, you, you had fun and I know the audience will definitely glean a lot of helpful information from this one. So uh, thanks so much, John, and uh, looking forward to connecting again soon. Thank you so very much. It's been a pleasure. All right. I really hope that you enjoyed my interview with Coach John Craig from Performance Plus Tennis. Uh, thanks, John, for the knowledge that you've given us uh, throughout the many years and looking forward to producing more content with you. And if you enjoyed and got value from this episode, I would really highly, highly encourage you and appreciate it if you would subscribe, of course, and also leave a review for the Tennis Files podcast. And you can do that by going to tennisfiles.com slash Apple Podcasts or by just clicking the review button in your podcast app of choice that you use to listen to the show and leaving a review. I just find that Apple Podcasts is the biggest mover of the show in terms of uh, ratings and or, you know rankings and being more visible to more individuals to listen to. And I also want to leave you with a quote as I do at the end of every show. And this one is by Richard Branson. And Mr. Branson said, you don't learn to walk by following rules. You learn by doing and by falling over. A really great quote. Um, got some nice comments about it on my Instagram as well. People uh, really enjoying it. And it's very true. It's very interesting as well. 
uh, kind of along the same lines, you know, I went to law school and, you know, obviously learned a lot about different subjects um, in the legal field. But then when I actually went and, you know, went to a law firm, that's when I actually really learned the ins and outs. And, you know, I couldn't just like pop into a courtroom and then just be all set. You know, I, I had to kind of figure out what was going on, um, you know, with the help of a mentor. And that's why coaches are so important. So yeah, it's a similar sort of uh, thought with, with here where you basically learn by doing and then, you know, a lot of instances failing, but it's not the end of the world, obviously. I uh, hope it's not <laughs> for you, um, unless you're doing some sort of daredevil uh, escapade. But yeah, anyways, that was kind of a weird tangent. But yeah, just um, you know, go out there, play a match, uh, and then figure out what went well, what didn't go well, and the stuff that didn't go well, you try to problem solve and and fix those issues, and consult coaches and mentors and better players even, and uh, take video of yourself, and then learn that way. So. Those are some of the ways that you can improve yourself. And it stems from this quote. All right. Well, with that, thanks so much for listening. And I look forward to seeing you on the next episode of the Tennis Files podcast. This is your host, Mirabhan Aranshad, signing out. Thanks for listening to the Tennis Files podcast. For more tips to help you improve your tennis game, visit TennisFiles.com.